Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time, and then we'll jump right into our study tonight, okay? Father in heaven, we come to you and we bow before you, the one true living God, thankful that you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture, that you've given to us this marvelous, matchless book, a book that is unlike any other book. It is unrivaled. It is living and active. We come to the Bible and we understand who we are. We understand who you are. We understand the world that you've made. We understand what's wrong in it. Your gracious work to remedy that problem in and through your son and his gospel. We know indeed where all things are heading. Thank you, Lord. As again tonight we come to look at Psalm 119, we ask that you'd help us to behold the glory of your word, and in so doing, behold your glory and be transformed by it. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Tonight, Psalm 119. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Tonight we're walking through verses 129 through 136, I believe the 17th stanza after the 17th letter, the letter in Hebrew, pay, although you look at it and it looks like P-E, more on that in just a moment. As you make your way to Psalm 119, a reminder how we're trying to operate with our Wednesday evening Bible studies. We'll spend a portion walking through the account, considering what it says. Then towards the end, we want to open it up for some uh, discussion, open discussion questions where us as a group, we can think through maybe in light of what we've studied, some thoughts to ponder, things to discuss. And then we'll end our time, again, responding with one more worship song so that you're aware, so that you're ready for the discussion questions, so that you're not sitting there staring silently when we ask them, so we're not standing up here feeling awkward. Okay, we're all right with that? All right. Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136. Let me read the entire passage, sorry, of our stanza. Some of you were taking a deep breath there. Although, you know, that would be a wonderful thing. Maybe we'll have opportunity to do that sometime. Let's read the passage, hear it fresh, and then we'll begin to work our way through our study tonight, okay? Psalm 119, beginning in verse 129. The psalmist writes, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me, be gracious to me, after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word. Do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. 
teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Psalm 119, 129 through 136. Our study tonight is entitled Spiritual Fitness. Spiritual Fitness. I mentioned P.E. When I mentioned the words presidential fitness test, are we bringing back some repressed memories? Anyone in here have the presidential fitness test? You can raise your hand, it's okay. A few, do you remember what that was? I remember my time having presidential fitness test. I'll tell you about that in a moment. What, some of you I'm sure know more about this than I do, but in the 1950s they had some sort of study, some people came together and they thought, you know, it would be good for our young people to systematically put in place a way that they can learn bodily exercise, be tested and trained, maybe even put some sort of standard before them that maybe they could rise up to or even exceed, all to promote good, healthy exercise and healthy living. I believe it was uh, Ike, President Eisenhower, who put that into effect in 1955, 56, somewhere in there. And then, I guess it went all the way until the year 2013. And then it ended. Why did it end? I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe that's the mark of the downfall of our young people. From that point on, they forever would be soft. I don't know. You remember, though, the presidential fitness test, a variety of things, again, how they came up with what the standard was according to whether you're male or female, your height, your grade, your weight, who knows, but it was there. I remember I had it, thinking specifically elementary school, all the way in Spokane, Washington. And some of you think I grew up in the state of Ohio. I actually didn't. Born in Idaho, grew up in the state of Washington in Spokane. My school, Northwest Christian, we had PE class with Mrs. Barnes. We'd have then this presidential fitness test. Again, in the midst of the elementary school years, we'd go to PE. We'd be exposed to a variety of you know, sports activities. We loved PE. I, I looked forward to it. But seemingly at a random point during the year, suddenly we'd come to class and what would Mrs. Barnes say? It's time. Time for the presidential fitness test. You know, we'd think, what, what exactly is this? It, do you know what I'm talking of? Please, please tell me that you do. Okay. You'd be tested with your strength. There were pull-ups, sit-ups. Um, I remember she'd bring out this large box that you were supposed to lay down and put your feet up against flat, Again, you couldn't cheat, you couldn't have your knees bent. And do you remember what you had to do, what we had to do? Lean as far as we could with our arms stretched out to see how flexible we were. Some of the people, I have no idea how they could stretch that far. I was not one of them. Uh, again, pull-ups, sit-ups, and then you remember having to run a mile? how fast you'd have to run that mile. Again, you wanted to meet that presidential standard. 
Maybe you were with your peers looking at one another. Again, ironically, I look back uh, for a few years, our school, where it was located, um, you know, in the middle of a neighborhood, busy streets. We were in elementary school, and I remember our teacher, at least two years, maybe three, when it came time to run the mile, she would have our class head outside of the building, outside of the school fences, and one mile was two laps all the way around the entire school property on the sidewalk with life and cars all driving by it, I look back and think, how was it that they had us do that? How was that even safe? And then maybe you were like some, at some point you realized, you know, I will do the best I can, but maybe this presidential fitness test doesn't quite matter. And running the mile turned into taking your time and walking the mile. There may or may not have been a sixth grader in here who did that. The whole point, again, promoting what would be healthy. It was a test trying to build into our young people the, the need, the importance of health and exercise, the value of it. Maybe even along the way, the PE teachers, wherever they were, I know Mrs. Barnes with us, she would try to help us, showing us how you were to do things with the proper technique. So you'd be tested, but then you'd also be taught and you'd learn. Fast forward today, certainly don't have that test anymore, but you can look out and see the endless options for exercise, for fitness, even what's available on your smartphone. You can, you know, sign up and subscribe to something. You could get the you know, what, the Peloton bike, even though I think its stock isn't doing too well. Get that. You have the screen in front of you. You get the coach, you know, telling you how fast you need to cycle, etc. You think of fitness training. You think of training for a race, a 5K longer, a marathon. You think of cardio, aerobic exercise, the importance of that. You think of the importance of weight training. Why are we camping on all of that tonight? Well, to get in our mind that place for fitness and how you come into the spiritual life, into the Christian life, and it's good to have that same mindset towards activity and fitness. Sometimes people refer to them as spiritual disciplines. Maybe tonight we're just thinking more broadly of personal spiritual fitness. That when we come to our section tonight, certainly we could learn this in other places, but I think in our passage tonight, there's some timeless, wonderful responses that the psalmist models to us, responses that as we look at them, it's as if we tonight can gauge ourselves by these responses, almost as if it's in a way like a spiritual fitness test not trying to, to put us down or to belittle us, but to stir us up and to encourage us. That we tonight would look at the psalmist in our section, see the unique ways that he responds, that we'd look at that, that we'd maybe be challenged by that tonight. And all throughout this psalm, we think of how he relates to God's Word. I don't know if you've been, but I certainly have been challenged 
Do I love God's Word with the same intensity the way the psalmist does? Do I long for and desire this Word the way that the psalmist does? Do I treasure it up and store it up inside and seek so carefully to know it because I love it, because I love God, and I want to obey it? Again, we're challenged by Psalm 119. Well, tonight, this section, 129 through 136, think of it like that, like a spiritual fitness test. That tonight we might be tested and I think also taught all in the three responses that the psalmist models for us. And again, for this section, uniquely, again, uh, in the original, each verse begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, the psalmist, whoever it might be, trying to again put before us how majestic this word is. Spurgeon said of this section, it's precious, practical, profitable, powerful, peculiarly so. So let's dive in. Let's consider the responses that the psalmist has. Be tested by it be taught by it. The first is simple, verses 129 through 131. What's the first response? It's the response to God's Word. He makes some wonderful, wonderful statements. As we look at them, it's, it's him looking at, him considering, him in relation to God's Word. And right off the bat, Again, tonight, we hear this fresh, we're stirred up, we look at the Bible in front of us, the Bible that you, as a gift from God, have in your lap. He says, your testimonies are wonderful. They're wonderful. When he considers God's word, his response towards it, he thinks of it. He proclaims, God, your testimonies, your word, what you've revealed, what is true and what is truth, they're wonderful. Okay, that that uh, contagious attitude from the psalmist needs to rub off on us tonight. Maybe we begin to view God's word in a familiar way, the way we approach reading God's Word, the way we approach hearing God's Word when it's preached. We know it's important, but we've lost that sense of awe and wonder and even enthusiasm. The psalmist is trying to stir us up. He looks at the Word, he says, God, it is wonderful. And a wonderful word that it is that he uses here. A word, speaking of uh, scripture's origin, speaking of Scripture's glory, a term exclusively used for when God acts or for when God speaks, meaning not something that's just the mere product of men, but coming from the God who is wonderful. His very word and its testimony is wonderful. I mean, you could think of it like this. Your testimonies are out of this world. 
They're that great, wonderful, and supernatural. This is true of the written word. Maybe as you even see that word wonderful, maybe it makes you think we're coming up on a Christmas time. Maybe even think of Handel's Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful. Remember that? Counselor. Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of the Messiah, that he is wonderful. The psalmist, he thinks of God's word, his response towards it, kind of setting the orienting thought even for our entire section. Is that wonderful? You think it's wonderful in its nature, and it's wonderful in its effects. Wonderful in its nature, let's remind ourselves tonight, you open up the Bible, and it's not like opening up, you know, the phone book. All the same, all there, that information and data, but after a while, it's just boring. You come to the Bible and its nature, its variety. You think of the many genres in Scripture. You read the book of Genesis, the great powerful narratives there. Even how the Bible begins, the great triumphant truth proclaimed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You think of its detail and accuracy in recording history. That even as, what, archaeology through the centuries, as they dig and collect items and piece things together time and time again, it verifies what the Old Testament history records. Far though from just a history book, it's a book filled with rich wisdom. The timeless nature of just one book, the Proverbs. All that's gathered up and collected there so long ago and yet still timeless, timely, true for us today. I mean, we interact with people and we read through the Proverbs and we begin to make sense. Oh, that's, that's what Solomon's speaking of here. You get to some of the other wisdom books. Take Ecclesiastes. I mean, the big, timeless questions that humans all throughout the ages wrestle with, no matter where they are. Why am I here? What is this world all about? Is there any meaning and purpose and satisfaction? Behold, you have a whole book dedicated to answering that. You think of just the Psalter, the wonderful display of uh, worship and song, how that would be gathered together and sung. Think of the wisdom in the New Testament epistles, all the detailed, packed full truth to the church. You think of the gospel accounts. Man, are there any other books like the gospel accounts? Even take the gospel of John, how he labors all throughout that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him you might have life in his name. I mean, have you forgotten that? Do you remember that wonder and awe? You take even a book like Ruth, that, that unbelieving students of literature would look at that and say, what a majestic piece of writing. And think all 
coming together with all the different authors, what, over 40 authors written over such a lengthy period and yet brought together one unifying message and theme. Surely, God's word, your testimonies are wonderful. We open it, we hear it, we read it, we marvel at this word. Then to think its effects in people's lives. I mean, more on that in just a moment here, but how it totally changes and transforms people, nations, societies, marriages, you name it. Again, woe on us when we begin to forget this. And it becomes a chore and a burden for us to even crack open our Bible. How oh, the psalmist here, we're tested, but we're to be taught by this. His response, he sets that before himself, he reminds himself, and that's why he says, my soul observes them. God, it is good for me to know and to keep, to obey what you've said. My whole soul, my whole person, my mind to know your word, my heart to love it, my will to obey it. God, I'm all in with your word. There's delight, but there's also direction as the psalmist looks at the word and responds to it. Verse 130. Get beautiful imagery here. He says, The unfolding of your words gives light. Uh, the imagery unfolding, you go to the ancient time, most people, the home, maybe sort of like a tent, really one way in, one way out, didn't have access for windows. You begin to move open that door or even curtain, whatever it might be, and as it opens up, light begins to flood in and illuminates so that you can see. He says, God, your word, as it's, as it's opened, as it's read and taught and explained, it's as if we're in darkness and suddenly the great spotlight of Scripture, the great sunlight of Scripture casts its wonderful light and warmth and illuminates that we begin to have direction. And that's, that's what God's Word is and that's what God's Word does. He's speaking here of even illumination. And note even who he singles out that this Word helps. It gives understanding to the, do you see that? The simple. Very important we understand what this word is. It's a word, a person, Solomon, especially in Proverbs, is going to circle, single out, and call attention to that spiritually speaking, 
we all begin as this simple figure, the simple person, even especially a young person growing up that right off the bat, it's as if they are simple. They're open-minded. They don't have much experience. Because they're open-minded, because they don't have a lot of experience, mark it, they are very vulnerable and susceptible to be led the wrong path and to be led astray to error and to evil. Naive, really, you could put that word in. It's not that it's automatically uh, um, you know, a, a sinful issue, but because of the susceptibility to be led astray or, or to be taken advantage of, there's need to be instructed in wisdom and to receive understanding. Again, Solomon, especially chapters 1 through 9, he writes to his son, he's trying to help his son, son, you are simple and you need wisdom to navigate this world so that you don't be led astray by the fool and the scoffer. That's a dead end. And you're going to head that path if you don't humbly listen to the wisdom of God and follow it and obey it and treasure it up. And to think God has given his word to help that person. As it's read, as it's explained, it begins to give light, it begins to give understanding, direction. And again, uh, married to the prior verse, wonderful in its effects, totally changes and transforms someone. You'd be amazed if you don't know, but if you take time to read the effect of the gospel and the word of God when John G. Payton went to the cannibals in the 1800s in the far, far uh, Pacific Ocean. Today it's known as Vanuatu. Then it was known as the New Hebrides. And he there with a burden for their soul would go and labor losing his first wife and their infant son, having to bury them, then even for a period of many days, having to guard over their very grave because the cannibals were such that they would seek to dig up and devour the carcass and body. You think going to a people like that, as Peyton would describe them, here was a people with no knowledge of God's word, no knowledge of the gospel. Yes, Romans 1, knowing that there is a God and they're accountable to him, but without the special revelation of Scripture. You read the account, you come across these people, again, cannibals, how they would be quick to anger and would murder one another, how they treated the men especially, treated women horribly, their wives horribly, children horribly. And then they'd go around their life fearful, superstitious, 
constantly on edge trying to worship and, you know, appease their pagan god. The gospel goes in. The word is taught. Souls are saved. What begins to happen there? They come to their senses. They begin to understand who they are and who God is. Many of them saved from their sin. In fact, one of the most simple but wonderful things, as other missionaries would come in and even head to the island and see the people, just the sight of some of them being clothed, that in and of itself was an indicator the word is at work in their lives. They'd be clothed the men understanding how they ought to love their wives and serve their wives and lead their wives, love their children, care for their children, how it was important to work and to help. And then all that fear and superstition, how that began to dissipate because they knew God through Christ and knew that in Him they were accepted and at peace with Him. I mean, just the testimony of that, you see this wonderful word and its effect in changing people, giving understanding to the simple. How precious that is. There's delight, there's direction, there's even desire. That's his response here to the word, verse 131. I opened my mouth wide and panted. Why I longed for your commandments. Oh, a verse like that tests us. He's borrowing imagery from the the animal world. The eagerness of a hungry or thirsty animal. Makes me think just from maybe a year or two ago at our home, outside our main bathroom, There's some sort of, it's not a tree, some sort of bush. If my wife were here, she'd be able to tell you. Typically, every spring, birds come and they create a little nest. just so happened that that year, the location for the nest, you could look right out our bathroom window, right down, and it was right there. Some type of bluebird. Baby birds would be there in that nest. Our girls would love to go to the bathroom window. One of them, especially small, stand on the stool, on the tiptoes, look out the window. In fact, it seemed for a period every morning, first thing waking up to go look out the window at these birds. You'd go and you'd look, and when they were so small, there in that little nest, and the, the mom out gathering food. The little birds sitting there, what are they doing? It's as if they were just there the whole time, all scrunched together with their head up and what? The mouth open. As if one thing was on their mind. What a simple picture. And the psalmist is saying that that's how simple but so sweet how he approaches God's word. It's like Peter in 1 Peter, like newborn babes, what? 
long for the pure milk of the word. There's this insatiable appetite. He can't get enough. And again, how this even, uh, I think we have a question for it later, we'll get to it, but changes the way that we approach not just reading, but hearing God's word, hearing God's word when it's taught. And we gather together and we have this perspective and we respond in this way. I just want to hear what God says. I'm longing for it. With that insatiable desire and appetite. You know, it's interesting, it's almost the opposite of the human body. Human body, what, the less you eat, the more hunger you become. The more you eat, what, less hunger you are, you're satisfied. It's almost like you flip it spiritually. The less you eat, almost the less hungry you are. But the more that you eat, the more that you take in God's word, suddenly it's as if the appetite increases. That's his response to God's word. Second test with our spiritual fitness test tonight. In his second response, put simply, not only is there a response to God's word, there's a response to God. In light of Scripture, he now is going to look vertically in, in rapid fire succession. I mean, look at 132 through 135. Uh, request after request after request. 132, turn to me, be gracious to me. 133, establish. Do not let iniquity have dominion. 134, redeem. 135, make your face shine. Teach. You see that? Again, he, he's shifting. He's looking up to God and it's as if one prayer request after another is offered up to him. Bringing them together, I think you could boil down these requests into two prayers. First, there's prayer for provision. 132 and 135. And then in the middle, 133 and 134, there's prayer for protection. In the psalmist, he looks up to God. He prays for God's provision. What's this provision? He's asking God for, for help, for strength, for grace. And how, how easily he turns and pivots and speaks to God and asks God, God, would you turn to me? Be gracious to me. I love what he says here. After your manner with those who love your name. He says, God, I know your character and I see how you care for your people. Maybe even he has specific people in mind. Through their great trial, how God held them up and helped them and provided for them. And he's saying, God, what's characteristic of you towards those who would love your name, 
oh God, I love you. I love your name, all that you are. Would you not treat me and help me and provide for me in that same way? Not only that, he says 135, make your face shine upon your servant. Does that wording sound familiar? He's drawing from Numbers, what, chapter 6? The great blessing, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, what? Cause his face to shine upon you. It's a way of asking for God's blessing, for his favor. He's saying, God, will you not help me? Provide your blessing. And even as he does that, continue, God, to teach me. The psalmist here is always wanting to learn more. You know, we can even pause here and think us on this side of the cross with the rest of Scripture filled out, the wonderful promises for those who are in Christ Jesus. To think if you here tonight are in Christ, that you've been saved from your sin, you are accepted, totally and fully justified in God's sight, that you have his favor, that as Romans 5.1 would say, you now have peace with God. Or later in Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no, what? condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Sure, we can stray and be disobedient and receive his loving discipline, but his overall disposition and demeanor towards us, if we're in Christ, united to his son, even to think he looks upon his son and he would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? well-pleased and united to that well-pleasing Son, God looks at us in His Son and we are accepted that we have that favor. What a thought. Doesn't that further prompt you then to think how I, how I need to ask for His help and provision? He's not going to be miserly towards me. Not only prayer for provision, there's prayer for protection. You can look in the middle, 133 and 134. Oh, he prays for protection. First, for inward temptation, 133. Asking God, uh, firmly establish my steps in your word. God, so root me in Scripture. And as that happens and I dive deep with my feet firmly planted, oh God, help me, protect me that iniquity would not have dominion over me. And here especially, we ought to be tested and taught tonight. How many times already in this single psalm, the psalmist has expressed 
his own vulnerability, his own weakness, his own susceptibility, that he understands how dangerous sin is and to tempt, uh, be tempted by it, to flirt with it at all, to give in an inch, how deadly that can be. Again, he's not cavalier. He's not above the struggles of others. There's humility here, and we desperately need this same humility. He's pleading with God. Maybe you've had the thought, you look at another person, another Christian, you begin to hear their testimony, even hear them open up about their own life and some of the, the struggles they have, the sin that they're very vulnerable to and tempted towards. And maybe privately you walk away thinking, man, I just don't know anything of that. I've never struggled with that before. Friend, to begin to have that very thought is opening up the door wide for sin to begin to come and have dominion over you. Maybe this moment you don't have that struggle or you're not tempted in that way. Who's to say, though, in a different season, with different factors, suddenly you do experience the pull of that temptation? Again, real quickly, if you can, it's as if put your finger here, turn back to Psalm 19. Again, another wonderful psalm. David, at the end of this psalm, again, his own humility. Psalm 19, verse 12. Again, as he has just thought about God's word, extolling its greatness, How he then says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. He's saying, God, I don't even know all this sin that I could be committing. Whatever way I'm falling short, God, will you please forgive me? And then he prays, keep back your servant from what? Presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Bold, public, open sin with no shame. Him saying, God, I need your help. Protect me. And then he'll even end verse 13. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression almost like final turning away from God. And how many people today, we hear all the time, the videos that are out there, someone who once was a professing Christian, but then has departed, has bid farewell to Christianity. Back in Psalm 119, the psalmist here is praying, God, Do not let that sin have mastery over me.
He also looks outward. There's trouble. There's oppression from man. Who knows the circumstances, but it seems all throughout this psalm, there's always some problem. Suffering, trial, persecution, hardship. He's he's saying, God, protect me. Note why he asks to be free and to find comfort. Maybe that would be a side benefit, but his whole focus, again, is that he could keep God's word. That's the response to God prior. There was the response to God's word third and finally tonight. And suddenly the requests stop and he ends this section with a statement with his own attitude as he would look out at the unbelieving. The third response tonight that we're tested and we're taught is a response to the godless. And he looks out at those who do not keep your law Unbelievers going about in their disobedience. He says, My eyes pour forth streams of water. He thinks of the godless and the unbelieving, and it eats him up. He weeps. He's so burdened over them. As Matthew Henry said, the sins of sinners are the sorrows of saints. As another commentator puts it, Plumer, two things in sin chiefly move the godly to mourn for it. The dishonor it brings God and the perdition it brings on the sinner. And how quickly we can lose sight of that. We have our causes, our concerns that we get sucked into. Some of them more legitimate than others. Some of them more important than others how quickly we can get so turned off or grow hard and hardened towards those who are on the broad way heading to a sure destruction. Here's where it really hits home. Could even be our own family members that maybe for so long the pattern has been this disregard for God's word marching along, I don't care that you're a Christian, I don't want anything to do with your God. And our prayers to God for their soul begin to dry up. Almost as he thinks of God's word and he thinks of who God is. 
I mean, think about God incarnate. As Jesus heads into Jerusalem, Luke 19, how it says he weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you together. I think especially this verse tonight ought to challenge us. The wisdom is well from Calvin. He says, as we begin to look out and weep for others, let's make sure first we're weeping over our own sin. and We're burdened over that first. Then we look outwards and we're grieved as we see so many disregard God. Simple words here tonight, but I think each one of these responses in its own way, as we look at the psalmist, we look at our own lives, we begin to test ourselves if we respond in the same way, but even learn and we're taught how we ought to respond, the wisdom and help here that God has provided in this one section our spiritual fitness for tonight. Why don't we pray and then we'll move into our time of discussion. Father, we thank you for this section tonight. Lord, we are challenged by these words, challenged with how the psalmist with unrelenting zeal wants your word because it's your word. We're challenged by his, his regular requests offered up to you. He certainly doesn't go about as a practical atheist, living as if there is no God. But woven throughout this chapter and in our section with such frequency, He's acknowledging his need for help. Oh, Lord, help us to see that need. Help, Lord, as well, this attitude towards the unbelieving, this broken heart towards the lost, that might more and more be cultivated in us, that it would even compel us, because we're compelled by the love of Christ. Tell them the good news of the Savior. Help us, Lord. Teach us, instruct us, correct us, strengthen us. We ask this for your sake. Amen.